I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. We'll be starting a new series this evening, working through the book of Judges. You'll notice if you've been part of Good Shepherd for any period of time that in choosing sermon series, one of the things that we are trying to do is preach both from the Old and the New Testament. For we believe that the Old and New Testament are forever interwoven. The new is concealed in the old and the old is fully revealed in the new. And so even in your own Bible reading, it is good to make sure you're, you're not just reading the New Testament. Hopefully you've been learning as we study the book of Hebrews that you can't fully understand Hebrews if you don't understand the Old Testament. And so it is good to be reading the whole counsel of God. Before we hear God's word to us this evening from Judges chapter 1 verse 1 through chapter 2 verse 5, let us call upon the Lord once again in prayer. Father, we do thank you for the word that you have given to us, that you have preserved for us. And we pray that we would love your word as the psalmist in Psalm 119 expresses love for your word. That we would not be caught up in lies that say the word is old and outdated and culturally irrelevant, but that we would fully understand that this is your timeless truth. That it is relevant for every person in every place at every time. And so we thank you for preserving your word in Judges. And we pray that you would give us the light of understanding that we might learn from it. Oh Lord, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word to you this evening from Judges chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 5. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They fought Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb and in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahimon and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. 
And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath-sephir and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenez, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses, his father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arid. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tonic and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Now, the next several paragraphs say the same kind of thing. Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali did not drive out the people that they were supposed to, and they subjected them to forced labor. So jump down now to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said... I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord to us. 
Now, if you've ever read through the book of Judges, you know that Judges is an exciting book. It's very full of, of action with few, if any, slow moments. I love the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but even I will admit there can be long, slow stretches in which Tolkien painstakingly describes every detail of the fictitious scenery for page after page. You do not get many of those stretches in Judges. In Judges, you have a left-handed assassin, a woman driving a tent peg into a general's temple, and one man killing a thousand with the jawbone of a donkey. It is exciting stuff. But Judges is also a puzzling book. While the events span the period of Israel's history from roughly 1400 B.C. to 1100 B.C., the chronology is not always clear. For some, judges overlap. They're operating at the same time, just in different parts of Israel. And the events at the very end of the book, chronologically, take place at the same time as events at the beginning of the book. And so Judges is not strictly organized chronologically. It is also structured geographically and theologically. Furthermore, many of the characters and events are hard to interpret. Are their actions and the events described to be approved or condemned? Are these people faithful or unfaithful? Even many of the little stories you hear in chapter 1, you read five different commentaries and you will get five different interpretations of whether they were doing the right thing or the wrong thing. The judges are obviously great saviors. They are also obviously great sinners. With that being said, Judges was not written to entertain you, and it was not written to confuse you. It was written to teach you. Yes, it teaches you about Israel's history during this very chaotic and tumultuous time. But it is not, first and foremost, a historical book just to give you detailed history. It is a religious, it is a theological book. In one sense, Judges is like history stepping into the pulpit to preach a message to God's people. It's like a sermon, but the main points aren't primarily explained as they are just illustrated. So it's more than history. It is interpreted history aimed at persuasion. So what is it trying to teach and persuade you of? What's the big idea? Well, that can be a bit challenging to answer because we don't know who wrote Judges, when it was written, or where it was written. Some argue it was written in the years following Saul's death, when David is vying with Saul's son Ishbosheth for the throne of Israel. And so they argue that this book is a political apology for David to be the rightful king. Now there's some plausibility to that, at least in part. Others argue it was written in the days of Manasseh, when he was king in Judah, and the people were descending deeper into spiritual depravity. It's also plausible. Many such arguments exist, but ultimately it doesn't matter. 
For if the who, when, and where of authorship and composition were essential for understanding, then God would have preserved those details for us. But even without them, and recognizing that there are various themes in Judges, the overarching message, I think, is twofold. One, Judges is a call back to covenant faithfulness. Two, Judges is a proclamation of God's enduring covenant faithfulness. So it's a book about worship, about obedience, about sin, and about salvation. But above all else, it is a book about God, who is actually the only one given the title of judge, who remains committed to his purposes, even in the midst of a seemingly purposeless time with aimless people. I therefore have entitled the series, God's Faithfulness to an Unfaithful People. It's what we're going to see throughout our time in Judges. And it's what I want you to come away better knowing. I want you to better know that God is committed to his covenant promises and building his kingdom. And that he can and will use flawed, sinful people to do his work. But ultimately, as is the case with every series that I preach, I want you to better know Christ and to trust him alone as your deliverer and king. For Judges does call you to faith in and faithfulness to Christ, but it also tells you of his faithfulness to you to deliver you from all your enemies, including your own sin, and even to use you in the midst of your sin and failures. My approach will be to view the book from a higher vantage point, considering the forest more than the trees. So there will be details that I will not deal with, although there will be times when we're, we will soar a, a bit lower and take a closer look at the landscape. I also don't intend to give you a thorough introduction here with all of the themes and guidelines for reading the book. I'll sprinkle that in throughout the series. Instead, I want to get right to the text. And like it is with some other Old Testament books, Judges begins with the death of a pivotal figure and leader. Exodus begins with the death of Joseph. Joshua begins with the death of Moses. Judges begins with the death of Joshua, who led God's people into Canaan to conquer the Canaanites, to wipe them out, and to take the land. So the book of Joshua is about the initial conquest of Canaan, which is very successful. The Israelites defeat their enemies, and they become the dominant force in Canaan. Judges is telling you about the next phase of the conquest. Israel has in one sense taken the land, but now they must fully possess it. They must go everywhere and annihilate all of the remaining Canaanites. For the call to conquer Canaan was not a call to rule over the Canaanites. It was to annihilate them. Moses makes this clear in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, I said that Judges is like a sermon. Well, what is the sermon text? 
Well, in many ways, the sermon text of the entire book of Judges is the book of Deuteronomy. Judges is in many ways an illustrative commentary and sermon on Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses says to the people, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, then he goes on to list those nations, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show them no mercy. So the command to conquer is the command to devote them to destruction. What we find in chapter 1 of Judges, though, is not the history of Israel conquering in this way, but of Israel compromising. And compromising is not conquering. This will set the stage for the rest of the book. The rest of the book is the story that results from Israel's sinful compromise. And that's then where we need to begin. What I want you to see this evening then is that covenant unfaithfulness does not always look like outright apostasy, like we're learning about in Hebrews. It often just looks like sinful compromise. See, sin is not always what you do. Sin is also what you don't do. So for the rest of my time this evening, I'm going to describe four aspects of the nature of sinful compromise so we can better guard against it. I'm going to briefly touch on the consequences of sinful compromise and then conclude with the encouragement that nothing, not even our sinful compromise, conquers God's covenant faithfulness. So let's begin with four aspects of sinful compromise. And number one, we see that compromise is losing steam over time. Judges begins on a very encouraging note. As one commentator says, the opening scene of the book offers so much promise. For Israel is actively seeking God's will for their next steps after their leader Joshua has died. And God is clearly speaking to them. He's giving them the answer, telling them what to do. And in light of what you read in Joshua, you would expect... More success as Israel possesses the land. And that's what you get at first. The opening chapter begins with just stories of more triumphs. The tribe of Judah, which God said is to lead the way. And that shouldn't surprise us. Since when Jacob blesses his sons, he prophesies over Judah saying, this is going to be the tribe that the royal line will come from. Judah leads the way and he teams up with the tribe of Simeon and they have great success. That's what you're really seeing in the first 20 verses. God is with his people and they are meeting out God's justice, which is demonstrated in the, the brief blurb about Adonai Bezek. When Judah defeats him, they cut off his thumbs and big toes, which sounds gross. But even Adonai Bezek recognizes this is just retribution in light of what I did to 70 kings. 
And as Judah continues on the war path, they capture Jerusalem, which will obviously be a crucial city. And they do what they were commanded to do. They utterly destroy it. They go on to fight in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowlands. We get a nice story of faithfulness, I think, in verses 11 through 15. And then we learn that the family of Moses' father-in-law appears to have fully integrated and become part of the people of Israel. And as Canaanites are defeated and cities are captured, we see, for example, in verse 17, that they are devoted to destruction. There's that important language. But as the narrative goes on, we see that the obedience starts to slightly waver. Now, while some commentators see negative signs earlier in the story, I think the first sign of sinful compromise comes in verse 19. And then it just gets worse from there. For in verse 19 we read, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now I admit that this verse is somewhat hard to understand. Is the author excusing Judah's failure here? Is that why he says that the Lord was with them? And then he mentions the, the chariots of fire, of fire, of iron. Is he saying that the reason they couldn't take the hill country is because those Canaanites were just too technologically advanced. And even though God was with them, they, they just couldn't overcome it. Well, I don't think so. I, I don't think the author is trying to excuse them. As I'll mention later, I believe the note about God's presence is actually intended to show they, they didn't have any excuse. True, the chariots of iron were a technological advancement that would have been very hard to overcome. But this was not a surprise discovery. You read in Joshua chapter 17 that the people of Joseph encountered chariots of iron. And they were very discouraged thinking, how, how can we possibly overcome this? But Joshua says to them, you shall drive out the Canaanites though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. Joshua doesn't want to hear any excuses. You have the Lord. The Lord is better than chariots of iron. So Joshua never thought chariots of iron were an excuse for failure. The Lord was with them and no weapon of warfare is too powerful for the almighty God. And furthermore, you have to remember that God commanded them to wipe out all of the Canaanites. Not most of the Canaanites, not just the Canaanites who didn't have chariots of iron, all the Canaanites. And as we will see, God always gives you everything you need to obey his commands. So I think this is the first hint of compromise, that Israel was not fully obeying. And it only gets worse. In verse 21, we read that the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Then in verses 22 through 26, we see that the house of Judah makes a deal with a Canaanite. And that's not good. Then we read about Manasseh and Ephraim and Zebulun and Asher and Naphtali and the repeated frame in every case is did not drive them out. 
seven times in these verses, like the ominous toll of a clock, we hear did not drive them out. So even though the Israelites are continuing to defeat the Canaanites, even subjecting them to forced labor, they were no longer driving them out completely. And so the Canaanites persisted in living among them. Israel was called to conquer, but they slowly devolved into compromise. So sinful compromise is when faithful obedience loses steam over time. The train blazes out of the station with full steam ahead, but then it slowly starts chugging to a crawl. And this is the challenge of the Christian life. We're not called to obey once. We're called to keep obeying. We're not called to go partway. We're called to go all the way. We are not asked to obey some of God's laws. We're asked to obey his whole law. Now, we don't mind obeying when it feels as easy or when his commands coincide with our desires. But when it's not so hard, easy or we, we don't like it, well, then maybe we don't want to obey as much. Like the rocky ground that receives the seed, we, we spring up enthusiastically, but we grow weary under the heat of the sun. Like Peter, we're open to forgiving once or twice, but surely there has to be a limit. Sinful compromise often surfaces where faith grows tired of working. And so my word to you is, be on greater alert and watchfulness when you feel yourself growing weary and doing good. You're more susceptible at that point. So you need to become more watchful, not less watchful. Compromise loses steam over time. Number two, we see that compromise neglects what God provides. Sometimes faith grows tired simply because of the weight of the burdens that God calls us to carry. Other times it's because we are neglecting what God has actually given us to strengthen our faith. Now even the most healthy athlete who's trained well will grow tired when he's running a marathon or has to lift hundreds of pounds. But the athlete who's not training well, who's neglecting sleep and exercise and a healthy diet, will feel that even the littlest task is too much. Christians can become prone to excuses when they fail to do what God commands. When life gets hard and we grow lax, sometimes we start to blame God. Well, God took my family. God took my job. I was born with physical or mental illness. God gave me trials that were too hard. God doesn't answer when I pray. God's not telling me what to do. God put me in a hard circumstance. God gave me bad parents. God gave me a bad church. Now, God certainly ordains hard providences at times, which talked about this morning and it is okay to lament and cry out to the Lord and say this is hard help me but God's hard providences aren't excuses for sinful compromise as if now it's okay to just look for an easier way out we never have excuses for our sin Notice the details that Judges gives us as it describes Israel descending into greater spiritual comp sinful compromise. 
You see at the very beginning, when they inquire of the Lord, he answers them. He is not silent and far away. And yet you notice they're becoming silent. You don't hear God's people inquiring again of the Lord. But eventually it's the Lord who comes through his messenger to inquire of them. Now we've been learning in the book of Hebrews that God has given you free and full access to his throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. When he seems silent to you, could it be at times that you are the one who has grown silent? That you are not calling upon him as you once called upon him. Do not neglect the grace of prayer which God has provided to bring you to himself even as he comes down to you. Had they inquired of the Lord when they scouted out Bethel, which you see in verses 22 through 26? Could they have found a different way into the city that didn't require making a deal with a Canaanite? We must ask if we are taking the easy way of sinful compromise at times. Because let's face it, waiting upon the Lord in prayer doesn't always give us the immediate results that we want. And waiting on the Lord in prayer is hard. So we get tempted. Well, I'm going to stop praying and I'm just going to find some way to, to do it. Yes, be proactive in looking for ways to endure through trials. But don't stop praying. Keep seeking the Lord. Notice also the repeated mention of God's presence and provision. In verse 4, the Lord gives the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hands and they defeat 10,000 men. Again, in verse 19, we're told that the Lord was with Judah, yet this time they failed to overcome the chariots of iron. And yet we know if God is for us, who can stand against us? The implication then is that by verse 19, they're not fighting and relying upon God's presence like they were in verse 4. Again, in verse 22, the Lord was with the house of Joseph. Why make covenants with Canaanites when you have God with you? Israel grew strong, it says in verse 28. But they used their strength simply to enslave the Canaanites instead of killing them. The implication is that Israel's failure to obey was not from lack of power and provision. God was with them. God strengthened them. God gave their enemies into their hands. God also gave them one another. You see this provision. Judah and Simeon wisely team up to go out and fight. They find greater strength in their unity. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, God has given you everything that you need to obey him. He's given you his word, which is a mighty sword that nothing can withstand. He's given you the supply line of prayer to receive all the ammunition and supplies you need from the throne of grace. He's given you the sacraments to feed you and impress upon your body and soul the truth of his gospel. He's given you his church which is the largest family and greatest army in the world, brothers and sisters, to fight with you in the trenches. And he has given you his Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, to be with you wherever you go. And what power in the world or even in your own heart is mightier than his Spirit? He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So again, coupled with Point number one, the problem is not 
God failed to give you what you need. The problem is, is we grow tired of waiting and thinking this isn't work, so we stop using what he has given us, and we think, I've got to go find some other solution. This is taking too long. When sinful compromise surfaces, even when you are hard-pressed and burdened from every side, you don't have an excuse. God has given you every grace and provision. Are you using them, or are you neglecting them? Your obedience is the same as the Israelites' victories. It is the result of God giving you victory. All glory belongs to Him. Christian obedience in one sense is just trusting that God will keep His promises, and so it is receiving His gracious provision. But disobedience, on the other hand, is your neglect. It is not God's failure. He has not failed to provide. So compromise is losing steam over time. Compromise is neglecting God's provision. Number three, we see that compromise often tries to excuse sin in light of success. Sometimes we attempt to excuse our sin by blaming God. Other times we attempt to excuse our sin by appealing to our success. But never think that the ends justify the means as if God is pleased that his purpose is fulfilled even when we have pursued it through means he forbids. The fact that God still overrules and uses sin for salvation or uses sinners to accomplish his salvation does not mean that God is ever pleased with sinful methods. It's not actually the result that tells us whether or not God is pleased. It is, did we do what God said and do it in the way that he said to do it? So it's dangerous to think, well, God is still using me, so he must be okay with my sin. I heard a story once about a pastor who was having an ongoing affair. And every Friday, he would feel convicted as he was preparing his sermon to preach that Sunday. And he would resolve in his heart, on Monday, I'm breaking it off. But then when that Monday came, after he had preached and seen good fruit from his preaching ministry, he would continue in the affair thinking, well, the good results of this ministry must mean this isn't that big of a deal. Perhaps the house of Joseph thought the fact that they struck the city with the edge of the sword and destroyed Bethel justified making a deal with the Canaanite and then letting his family go free. But God had been clear. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. Unless you think this is the same as in Joshua 2 with Rahab, there is a huge difference. Rahab was demonstrating faith in the God of Israel. And she becomes an Israelite. This man simply goes his own way to rebuild the city that they had destroyed in another place, showing, yes, they might have taken out physical laws, but they had not wiped out its spiritual presence in the land. What matters is whether or not you obey commands, not the results of your obedience or disobedience. Too often we judge faithfulness by external results, but God doesn't. So what if disobedience sometimes leads to positive results? That doesn't justify disobedience. And so what if obedience sometimes leads to negative results? That does not nullify God's pleasure. 
Sinfulness is not measured by success or the lack thereof. Fourth, compromise views partial obedience as full obedience. And this is the crux of the matter. Because the Israelites were overpowering their enemies and doing some of what God commanded, they thought God would be pleased. Wasn't this Saul's defense when Samuel confronts him about his unlawful sacrifice or about sparing Agag and the best sheep and oxen when God told Saul, devote it all to destruction? Sacrifices were lawful. But God was not pleased when they, were authored, when they were offered unlawfully. And when God said devote everything to destruction, he wasn't pleased when only most everything was devoted to destruction. Partial obedience is not obedience. And again, we see this in verses 22 through 26. Yes, Bethel was destroyed, but the sinful compromise just allowed it to be rebuilt somewhere else. Had they done what God asked? In one sense, yes, but not in the truest sense. The seed of Luz was allowed to endure and grow again. That was not total destruction. Half-hearted, half-full obedience is not obedience, and it is not what God requires. God called Israel to conquer. What they did was compromise. So what were the consequences? Well, the consequence was the canonization of Israel. The Canaanites persisted in the land. And as we'll see in this series, that's what leads to the host of problems. It meant that God's purposes were going to take longer to fulfill. It meant that there was going to be more pain and hardship than necessary for God's people. It meant disrupted communion with God. You see, there was a reason for God's command. Oftentimes, we just think his commands are arbitrary or just he's being too harsh. Now, why were they to wipe out the Canaanites? You can go on campus and talk to people who have any understanding of the gospel and Christianity. And one of the objections you'll find to Christianity, well, how could we follow a God who commanded the annihilation of the Canaanites? Well, why does God command this? Well, first, the Canaanites were a wicked people. Yes, God was blessing Israel and fulfilling his promises to them, but he was also judging Canaan. This was just judgment upon a wicked people. Moses says in Deuteronomy 9, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. And you catch a glimpse of this wickedness with Adonai Bezek. So sometimes we disobey God's commands and we refuse to follow him because in our hearts we say, I'm actually more just and merciful than God. I wouldn't have killed the Canaanites. I know better. The problem is, is we're not as good and just as God. And we don't hate sin and wickedness as much as God does. Thankfully, God is actually just and judges wickedness. When we would just let it run rampant. But the other reason that God commanded Israel to wipe out the Canaanites was for their own spiritual protection. Deuteronomy 7 continues. 
You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. The main issue was spiritual. The canonization of the land would lead to the canonization of the heart. If they didn't totally conquer, they would begin to look like what they were supposed to conquer. And then they would face the wrath of God. They were sent into the land to be God's judgment against Canaan's sin. But the irony we'll see is that because of their compromise, the Canaanites are going to start to serve as God's judgment upon Israel. As one commentator says, instead of making this the land of the people of God, they become like the people of the land. So when the angel of the Lord speaks to them on behalf of God, he says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. And this is what you see in Judges. Sin has real consequences. The Canaanites would persist in the land, causing all kinds of trouble and becoming an ongoing temptation to idolatry. If you don't clear the woods of snares, eventually you're going to step in one. Christian, think of your heart like the land of Canaan and your sin like the Canaanites. In many ways, there's applications for families, for churches, for nations, but I just want to focus on the heart right now. As you are regenerated, your heart is to be a land devoted to God. But that means you are called day after day to put indwelling sin to death. Paul commands the Colossians, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We are not called to compromise with our sin. We are called by God's grace to conquer it. Don't negotiate with your sin. Don't let it rent a room in your heart. Imagine if you had a roommate whose goal every day was to kill you. Would you keep sleeping in the same apartment? Would you eat breakfast and watch movies together on the couch? No. And believe me, your sin is trying to kill you and yet we keep co-signing leases with it. Sinful compromise is serious. We must fight against the canonization of our hearts. For our heart will either be conformed to the world or to Christ. Sinful compromise leads to the former. Christ-empowered conquering leads to the latter. But let me end with this encouraging word, which is embedded in God's lament over Israel's disobedience. I hope you heard it. He reminds them of what he had told to them before. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I will never 
break my covenant with you. In Judges, you will see the steady declension of sinful compromise. Next week, we'll consider this downward spiral. But let me tell you up front what you will never see in the book of Judges. You will never see God's covenant faithfulness grow tired and run out. You will never see God give up on his people. You will never see him stop forgiving them when they turn in repentance. You will never see him stop raising up deliverers for them when their sin gets them into trouble. You will never see his kingdom ultimately fail and you will never see, you will never see his redemptive purposes fail. So does sinful compromise make life harder and more painful than it needs to be sometimes? Yes. But does even your sinful compromise defeat God's covenant faithfulness to you and good purposes for you? No. For God said, I will never break my covenant with you. And he is always true to his word. Judges is the story of God's people breaking the covenant over and over again. But it is also the story of God keeping his covenant to his people over and over again. And the end of the matter is that God's faithfulness is mightier than your unfaithfulness. This isn't an excuse for unfaithfulness, but it is to guard you from, your despair, from despair when you are unfaithful. Of course, what is best is guarding against sinful compromise. Doctors always tell you what to do to prevent illness and injury. And this you do by God's grace, utilizing the provision he has amply supplied. But what about when you do sinfully compromise? When you do suffer, therefore, spiritual illness and injury? Is there any medicine? Is there any way to be healed? Yes. It is to turn in faith and repentance once again to the Lord Jesus Christ. For he is the perfect Savior who did not live a life of partial obedience, but of perfect obedience. And he is a Savior who is mightier than all of your enemies, your sin, the world, the devil, and even death. So mourn like the Israelites mourn, but do more than cry. Cry out. To Jesus for forgiveness and cleansing. Yes, for the grace of forgiveness for your sin. But also for the grace and power to fight your sin. And he will always supply it. The Israelites offered sacrifices for sin. Jesus became the sacrifice for sin. For nothing conquers God's covenant faithfulness in Christ. Not even your repeated unfaithfulness. What you are called to do is return again to the one that God raised up from the dead for your salvation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would use your word to help us be watchful. That you would give us the grace not to neglect your means of grace. But Lord, when we do fail, when we do sin, we ask that we would truly mourn and hate that sin, but that you would give us the grace to turn once again to Christ. 
to see his perfection, his righteousness as our own. To know that his blood can wash us clean from every sin that we ever have or will commit. And that your forgiveness never runs out. So help us to keep repenting that you might keep forgiving. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.